You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form, one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. Do we know each other well enough for me not to lie to you? I'm going to... I'm going to hope that we do. I'm going to hope that at this point, uh, we all know each other well enough that I'm comfortable just telling you, giving you a little behind the scenes. We just at Vet Rep finished our workshop readings of Brat, starring Edie Falco uh, at Penguin Repertory Theater, who co-produced this with us. Um, it was awesome. We also had a Savage Wonderground the same week. It's been an exhausting week. So I was sprinting to get back to get this episode together. Fortunately, I recorded this interview with Michael Jerome Plunkett uh, before the week, the crazy week that we've just had. Uh, so I had a lot of time to talk to him, and that's the most important thing. Um, but as far as recording intros and outros, I, di- I have not had a lot of time, and I've not had a lot of thought, and I'm operating on two brain cells left. So let me just say this. Um, I love talking with Mike Plunkett. He is a bit of an anomaly for us in that I didn't have a ton of his own material to read and get smart on and learn his style. I did troll the internet and find some of his old stuff from Gettysburg College, um, and it's clear he's very, very talented. Um, but I know of him through Lit of War. I know about his work at PB Abate, and I know he is um, a mover and shaker in the veteran literary space. That alone was enough for me to be interested in talking to him. I cannot wait to see what work he does churn out in the future. Um, But he's a former Marine. uh, And talking about his military career, talking about his current career as an EMT, and how that's related to his writing uh, was incredibly interesting, incredibly valuable. Um, Yeah, just so many good threads to pull on. Uh, I'm sure you guys are going to enjoy this episode. So I'm going to step out of the way. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater. And this is The Savage Wonder of Michael Jerome Plunkett. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, I mean, I really got to thank you because... Fucking hell, man. Uh, I'm sorry about all the false starts and uh, everything else. It was, it was like, you know, yeah, I was like, my God, I'm putting this dude through the ringer, man. I was like, yeah, sorry. Can we push this back a week? Can we push it back an hour? So I really appreciate it, man. It's, I'm, I'm thrilled we finally get a chance to sit down and talk. Of course, just builds the anticipation. I'm working <laughs> towards this. I know. I feel like I got to have fucking phenomenal questions during this entire <laughs> thing. Otherwise, you could be like, dude, seriously, this is what I was pushing my schedule for the whole time. <laughs> Uh, where are you now? You're in Charleston right now? I am. I'm about half an hour north of Charleston in a town called Somerville. Okay. All right. And where are you at this point in your writing journey? You finished your MFA, right? Yep. Graduated last year. Uh, and I'm I'm still working. You know, the, the MFA experience is something that I, I wanted to do right out of undergrad. I went to Gettysburg College for my undergrad. I was an English major there and I immediately tried going to get my MFA two or three years in a row. I applied and I wasn't able to get in. Uh, kind of got denied, got burnt out on it, thought the whole thing was stupid, went away for a little while. And then I 
I don't know, couldn't, couldn't get away from the writing. And it was, it was a decision I had to make for myself where I was like, a lot of people tell me this is a useless degree, but for me, it was, it just seemed like the most logical next step. And it was time to write more importantly than anything to really immerse myself in a community where I could focus on the craft for two years. And, you know, it, it was a quick two years though. And that once yeah. that was over, I mean, I decided to stay here in South Carolina You know, I'm originally from New York and, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's nice to have summited that, that peak, but in many ways, it was just one more step on, on, on the, uh, on this process of becoming a, a writer. Had you been applying to the same MFA program during those years you kept getting turned down? Mostly I was very, I, I, so when I went to undergrad, when I was coming out of high school, I told my parents, uh, I basically didn't care about college and I wanted to join the Marine Corps. Uh, my grandfather had been a Korean War vet. He had been there right at the beginning, landed at Inchong. He was, he fought in the streets of Seoul. He was at the Chosen Reservoir. So they were like, wow. absolutely not because uh, <laughs> they, they knew the stories. And so I went, I checked out Gettysburg College. Uh, I was like, this place is awesome. I was a big Civil War guy. I found out they had a pretty good English program and I was like, okay, revised my statement. I'm either going to Gettysburg College or I'm joining the Marine Corps. So my parents were very invested, making sure my essays and my SAT scores were as good as they could be. And, you know, I look back on that now and I got into Gettysburg College and I ended up going there and I'm like, man, my life could have been a lot different. That was that was 2009, 2010 that I would have been going straight into the Marine Corps. And uh, yeah, it would have, it would have been a different journey. And I basically applied the same logic when I went tried to go to my MFA program. I want, I think it was... It was the University of Mississippi. That was my top choice. It was Faulkner Country. Where, sure. You know, yeah. Yep. And that was where I wanted to go. I went. I visited my senior year as a as a senior in college. I loved the town. I love. I got to meet mm-hmm. some of the professors, and I was like, "This is where I'm going to go." And I think it was three years in a row I applied, and they do a there. This particular program does rounds, right? So some programs it's just like you either made it in or you didn't. University of Mississippi, at least they used to. It would be like first round. They just they they kind of clean the clean the board out and they're like these you know however and then there's a second round and there's a final round and every year I got close the first year I didn't make it past the first round the second year I made it to the second round the third year I made it all the way to the last round but I could never get my foot totally in the door and that was tough it was like three years of just like getting a little bit closer and then getting but I didn't I didn't apply like 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 I was just saying I I, I had a very set yeah. like I'm either going here or I'm not and. Obviously, gotcha. I was not going. Yeah. So, what, what were you doing in the years in between? What was improving in your game ever with each submission? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I was I was growing up, right? Uh, I was going. I, I so I graduated a semester early, actually, from Gettysburg. Just I happened to I'd done some summer courses, like I studied abroad over, and it just so happened that if I took like one extra course in the fall of my senior year, I could graduate early and save a ton of money. So I mm. did that. And I graduated December 2012, I guess that was. And I kind of, I just went, I moved back to Long Island with my parents and I was like, well, what do I do now? And I happened to bump into my my high school history teacher who was then had been become the principal of the high school. I went to a small private school on Long Island. And he was, he was like, what are you doing now? And I was like, nothing. He's like, do you want to substitute teacher? I was like, sure. So like a week after I graduate, I'm back in the same, it was actually the same classroom that I had my final class in as a senior in high school, I was wow. there standing there as a, as a substitute teacher. So I, I was teaching a little bit, which was 
amazing because now all of a sudden, like I was teaching mostly English, but I, you know, I was a sub, so I bounced around a lot because they knew me, they would, they would trust me to actually like teach lessons, which was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. So I was getting to actually teach literature, which was helpful. Um, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't loving it. I, I was still working on my, my own writing and everything. And I felt like I was taking workshops too. You know, I was investing in myself in that way that I was, I was seeking out those, you know, New York city has a great writing scene. There's a ton of opportunities out there for free. And, and if you want to pay for things, you can do that as well. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, I just kept working at it, but I, it, it did feel like I was in the dark, you know, I was, I was like, what is, so I'm seeing a little bit of progress, uh, a little bit of validation, but at the same time I was starting to feel like, is this the validation I want? You know, is it this academic space, right? Is this, is this necessarily what I need? Like, and, and that's when I kind of was like, after that third year, I, I, so I applied to the University of Mississippi and maybe like two or three other programs. And that last year, I got waitlisted. It may have been LSU. May, or I think it was some other random school that somebody had told me mm. to apply to. And I had gotten waitlisted. So I was right at the door, but I couldn't. And, and there was this moment where I was like, is this, wh- why am I seeking this validation? My friends right. at that point, some of my friends who had gone straight into MFA programs were now graduating MFA programs because they're only two or three years. Yeah. And they were like, don't do it. It was, this is, I have no idea what I'm doing now. I'm even, I mean, even more dead or it was a waste of time or I feel like I should have waited. I don't know. Like it was over my head. And I was like, okay, well, screw that. And I turned around and, you know, basically did an about face and I became a full-time teacher actually at that point. I think I was a teacher for four or five years. First, like two were, I was a sub and then I, I became a full-time English teacher as well as ESL. I was doing that a little bit because that was all the rage. Uh, Everybody's like, get your, get your certification yeah. as an ESL teacher. Uh, but I, to be honest with you, I wasn't, I liked the idea of teaching, but I didn't, I was teaching at the same high school I went to. I felt like I had not left the launch pad. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so uh, that was when I was like, you know what, I'm still going to join the Marine Corps. And I did, you know, I, I joined the reserves. I, I met a reservist who was like friend of a friend and he told me all his, his war stories. And I was like, I thought there was, I didn't really understand what the reserves were. Mm-hmm. So once I talked to him and I was like, wait, you get to deploy and you get to do all this, all this cool stuff. He was like, Oh yeah, man, it was, you know, love it. It was a great time. And I was like, sign me up. And that was when my life took a, another hard left turn from there. Got you. Okay. So do you think the problem was you hadn't lived enough when you were applying to, to your MFA programs? That's a, I think about that often. I don't know if that's exactly it. And I go back and forth on this all the time. Like I grew up in a very nice home on the North shore of Long Island. You know, I had a mom who was able to stay at home, be very involved. And my dad coached all me and my brother and sisters and and sports and everything. And he provided and it, in that way. Yeah. I was, I was, uh, sheltered from certain things, uh, but I'm also, I resist this idea that like you need to have journey to the ends of the earth or had some right. kind of traumatic event or had something to, in order to write. I don't, I don't know that I agree with that necessarily, but I definitely was, I, I, I had not, things changed for me once I joined the Marine Corps in a, in a variety of ways. You know, I was married at the time, uh, got, ended up getting divorced. Uh, I was, once I got back from training. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher anymore. So I was like doing this hard left turn where I'm like, okay, so now I'm a Marine, but I'm a reservist. So I'm stationed here on Long Island and I got to figure out what this job situation looks like. I ended up in a friend of mine referred me for a, a position in, in, in finance. as like a financial advisor type of deal where 
you're an assistant to an advisor for a while, and then you kind of work your way up and you get your own book. And that was completely different than being a high school teacher, you know? So I did that. And then the first second uh, that I got a chance to jump ship, I jumped ship from that because that same friend actually helped me get a job at a software company. It was kind of like in the financial world, but not as a financial advisor. So I was like, screw that. I'm jumping. This seems a lot cooler. You know, I got like this career ADD thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that for, and that went horribly. That was not a good fit. I yeah. had that, I still had that like, because I, I went to boot camp when I was a little bit older. I think I was 24. Mm-hmm. I had that like boot camp confidence of I can do anything. So I did this, I did the finance advisor thing for a little while. I got my certifications. That was pretty tough. So I, I felt even more boosted up. I go to the software company and fail within eight months. Like I was just in over my head. Good mm-hmm. life lesson. You can't do everything. Learn that pretty quickly. So then I jumped back into kind of finance, but more like back office, uh, not advising necessarily, but more the operation side of things. So got to work. But once again, it was kind of like this, this uh, kind of Buster Keaton crashing through doors process of going from one thing to the next and somehow not falling completely flat on my face, but uh, not doing great either. I ended up, so I ended up temping for a year while I figured out the whole MFA thing, but it, yeah, it was a very twisty turn. And I, and I was serving in the Marine Corps the whole time as a reservist. So I'd go to the field for like a weekend, right. you know, I was a machine gunner. I would be shooting machine guns, doing, doing a couple of ranges. Then I'd come back and be sitting at a desk in Manhattan. Just a very, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of different, uh, pokers and a lot of different, different fires at that point. Um, there's a lot I want to dive into just based off what you've said. So let me start with the most obvious thing to me. Tell me about boot camp. Um, how did it feel to be there? Did you feel like this is exactly what I wanted? Did you feel like this was the splash of cold water in the face that you wanted? Or was there a sense of, eh, I might've been off a little bit more than I could chew or like, what was that experience like for you? Yeah. Paris Island. I, you know, I've got this theory that, I don't know exactly how to phrase it, but my, my my grandfather, going back to him, he joined right after World War II. Like he was late 40s. Wow. He he didn't know he he was 17. He got the paperwork signed off by his mother. He didn't know what the hell he was getting into. He got there and it was like, oh my God, I want out. I want out. Was trying to get out. And they he he didn't. And he was always proud that he didn't like give up, but he was trying to figure out a way to get out. Me, and I would say anybody from like, I don't know, the 80s onward. The, the movies, the documentaries, you yeah. know what you're going into. Yeah. You know, I actually was more nervous. I was like, man, if this has been built up to be something and it comes down and it's actually not what they make it out, like I'll be a little, but it listen, people always say, Oh, back in the day it was tougher, but now they've got this. That's true to an extent. That's true. But listen, drill instructors are very creative types. They figure out a way to get the training in one way or another. They might not be able to be as handsy with you anymore. Uh eyes aren't on them all the time. You know, there's things, things happen. I never felt like I was abused or hazed or anything like that, but you came and you joined the United States Marine Corps. It's not, it's not the boy scouts, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I, I left June 6th actually. So, you know, a very monumental day in American history. I had to, I was still a teacher at the time and that was finals week. And I was trying to get my date moved around a little bit, but I was also raring to go. They had to find a sub for me to finish mm-hmm. out my finals to like administer my exams and all that. And I showed up with the kids who, you know, who didn't, who never crossed the stage of graduation from high school, a bunch of 18 year old kids and me. And it was a, it was a jarring experience for a variety of reasons. I was like, oh yeah. I remember the first night getting there and just being like, this is it. Yep. This is, this is the next 90 days of my life. This is going to really not be a pleasant time. And 
I, I mean, I was older though. And I look older since I was 13. I've looked like I was 47 years old. So like I, I when I was 10 years old, I was shaving. Like that's a fun story. I like to tell people that I hit puberty freaking hard age of 10. They like the principal was like contacting my parents, like, okay, we got to have the shaving conversation with him because it was a Christian school. And like they had grooming standards and all that, all that. <laughs> nonsense. So I, I looked older, I was older and these kids, I, I was just telling somebody the story the other day that at some point, you know, the drill instructors are always messing with your head and they're always saying like, you know, we're always watching you. We're always. And I remember them having us. We were all sitting cross-legged in the squad bay doing that whole thing. And they were like, we'd had some issues with kids sneaking shit, sneaking stuff around, uh, you know, the peanut butter packets and all that. And they were giving us the stern talking to. And I remember our senior drill instructor was like, you think we're always watching you. Even if you we're not here, we're watching you. We even have a tactic where we will insert Marines into the platoon as recruits. <laughs> and everybody sitting there, everybody slowly starts and turns and looks right at me. I'm just standing there and sitting there like, oh, God. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> that was kind of the jarring experience for me was I was I went from being a, a teacher, an adult with a with a with a rent to pay, a wife. I could go drink beer in any bar I wanted to. I could go drive a car. And all these kids, some of these kids, like, they didn't even have their driver's license. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They were fresh out of home. They'd never been away from home before. And it was in that way, you know, a very different experience for me. Um, before we push on with the Marine experience, what was it like going to boot camp married? That seems like that would be a weird dynamic. It, it was. I did not wear my ring. I was told by my recruiter that that was like the one piece of jewelry you're allowed to wear. Uh, but I didn't want any attention on myself. Yeah. And I mean, they're ready. Well, I remember, you know, that first like two week period where there's a lot of administrative work uh, and they take certain people like the guys who were do who had Intel MOSs were going. They had to go for extra security or whatever. And they and if you were married. They like, I, I remember, I don't remember exactly, it was, it's all blur now, but I remember them taking a couple of us because I wasn't the only married guy. There was like two or three of us and they took us into, we had to go through a additional like sit down with a staff sergeant or whatever to make sure that everything was accounted for at home so that halfway through they don't find out that this guy's wife is like homeless or something like that. And mm -hmm. I just remember this staff sergeant, I can barely remember what he looked like, but he was such a piece of shit. Like <laughs> I like he he was like sitting there and like the whole you're you're a recruit and he's not a, I don't think he's a drill instructor necessarily this is in the administrative but I just remember him being like just basically saying like you know your wife's cheating on you right now like like the whole that was the the interview was supposed to be like about making sure you're fine but he just kept making these like jokes and I I mean she wasn't we were that wasn't you know I, I was I trusted her and we we did have we had a great relationship at the time not not so much later but that was kind of the attitude is like anything that made you different, they were going to not only exploit that, but they were going to really try and dig into you. And I, what I remember thinking at the time was like, man, this guy is miserable. <laughs> like, uh, is this how he gets his kid? This is yeah. how he gets kicks is like belittling a freaking recruit. And like, you know what I mean? Like it just yeah. wasn't, it wasn't professional, but I mean, that's, that's kind of the, that's the nature of the beast in that sense. Were you, um, was she supportive of you joining the Marines? She was actually, uh, she was very, very supportive. Not, at first there was like the shock because she, in her family, she didn't have too many, her uncle had served. I know that. I remember that. Um, and at first she was like kind of caught off guard, but I mean, since I was a kid, I had talked about this stuff. Like my highest aspiration from the age of like five was to be a civil war soldier. You know, I was obsessed. Uh, with the civil war. And yeah. for me, it was always, 
it was always the Marine Corps because my grandfather, except for when Band of Brothers came out, I had a brief fascination with the with the Airborne, but then it was right back to, you know, so this is something that, like I said, out of high school, I wanted to do. And then I, I put it on the back burner. Even in college, I played around with the idea of ROTC and then I put it on the back burner. When I finally, I was like, I, I was reaching this age where I was like, if I don't do this in the next year or two, I'm, I, yeah. I, I won't be able to, and then I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. And she was very supportive of it. And it was very difficult on her. Um, her grandfather died while I was in boot camp. Uh, so, you know, there, and she was on her own in, in some way. I mean, she had her family and everything, right. but there is like that first taste of like this, this is real. And like, I can't get in touch with my significant other when I, when I really need to. Um, but she supported me and was, you know, the first person I saw when I graduated and all that. Right. Right. So, who were you that the Marine Corps meant so much? And I guess what I mean by that is I, I'm kind of, I'm going to paint with a very broad brush. I feel like people that, and I'm one of them that were like really into the military at a very young age. Um, I was, I'll, I'll put myself in this camp because it's going to sound derogatory the way I describe it. And I don't mean it to, but I think there's the idealist camp and, and that's, that was me. It was, very romantic notions of the military because I didn't know anybody really in the military, but I did have these visions of it. And I was obsessed with the idea of war and patriotism and all this. And I just thought it was, I don't know, for some reason it, it really tweaked with me. Then there's guys that are like, you know, the athletes and they're like, Hey, I just naturally am. I like doing physical stuff. Military makes sense. It's a common sense thing and, and all that. Um, and then there's like those that just kind of, stumble their way into it from for other reasons or all that were you any of those three buckets or was there another option that kind of that you kind of see yourself fitting into i think those are those are some solid buckets uh for me younger especially when i was a kid definitely idealist um like i said since i was since i was like my parents took me to gettysburg when i was five mm. i saw pickett's charge that yeah. field i saw the the movie that the ted turner movie from the 90s and i just was immediately gripped by the idea of men walking out off across this open field under or t- with bombs falling on their heads. I mean, that just pulled some emotional thing out of me from when I was really young. Uh, so yeah, definitely the glory though, however you want to phrase that as I got older, I mean, I, I had, like I said, I had friends who'd served and I was kind of seeking their counsel. A lot of them were like, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Some yeah. of them, had been deployed some of them had been in combat some of them hadn't and some of the, but others were like you know I, I remember talking to my one friend and like so many people had said my parents were were not on board with it uh, some of my friends were in the military were not and i said to myself this is what i'm doing i made up my mind i'm joining the reserves and you can't tell me otherwise and he was like okay like go ahead yeah, <laughs> yeah. your own experience so i came to it like very uh at that, when I finally pulled the trigger, like I said, there were a couple of uh, false starts there. I, it was some of that younger stuff had not left, but I was also a little suspicious of it. You know, I didn't trust anything my recruiter said. I felt like I, yeah. I was well prepared in that sense. Um, so I wasn't surprised when like things didn't go the way I yeah. expected to. Um, but I, I, I really had to come to terms with it on my own in a certain way and realize that like, I didn't have too much control and that it probably wasn't going to be what I thought it was going to be. And you're still in the reserves now, right? I just got out about you a just year got ago. Out. Okay. Yep. So then, so then that's probably a good time for me to ask this. Did you feel, especially because your love of literature, you had these other passions that were driving you that some would say are even antithetical 
to a military mindset. Did you feel like you had to set yourself kind of on the side and kind of play a bit of a role to be in the military? Like, like, and not, not like you're posing, but just more like I have to shut off certain parts of myself. I can't fully be myself to do this. In some, I mean, I feel like the Marine Corps, they're very good at, at breaking that, at, at reforming you into a certain persona. And I think it needs to be that way. You can't just be a sp- special butterfly running around. No, no war ever has functioned on that sort of principle. Like right. critical thinking, thinking on your own too, that's a separate thing. But like kind of going around and just doing your own thing all the time just for the sake of being an individual is not, is not going to fly. So, I mean... Like I said, I stood out like a sore thumb in so many different ways. And I mean, I had a college degree, you know, that's a whole other thing. People are like, why didn't you get your, get a commission as an officer? Right. That's a whole separate thing. I mean, I, I it really, I wanted to go, I wanted to go and do yep. this yep. An officer route. You know, it's, it's different than enlisted. You have to be selected. I, I looked into that program. It was a whole, so I enlisted, I went there. I immediately like, they, they know all your information. They're like, this guy was an English teacher. Tons of Tom Hanks jokes from the moment I got to Paris Island, all that, you know, if you've seen Saving yeah. Private, you know what I'm referring to. That was an English teacher. Uh, I also was, you got to realize, I like I said, joined later, 2009, 2010, 2011, things were really hot in Afghanistan. And my combat instructors, especially my combat instructors, were all my age and were combat veterans. So the other thing was like, where the hell were you? Yeah, you know, yeah, and that was that was awkward. That was, you know, I got they were calling me war dodger, like, you yeah, know, just, yeah. like that. That was, I, I had a lot of that kind of thrown my direction, and I never, you know, some people they got some of my friends they got so comfortable, and I was, I think I was a pretty solid Marine as far as being proficient and having discipline and, and showing up on time, all the little things, but I never got totally comfortable, like. I was never totally relaxed. I, the, all the, 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 the customs and the courtesies, you know, it just never totally fit with my, I got used to it obviously, but that was not my, my happy place. I had friends who were just like, they, they were just in their element there and I adjusted, but I was never my, I mean, you got to realize I was, the other thing is like, especially in the Marine Corps, when you're walking around, you see somebody coming from far away and you can't, you know, that Marpet, you can't overnight it's always better just to salute and then apologize. <laughs> I was getting saluted before I left Paris Island because everybody was ah, like, and then, ah. and then the, I swear to God, this ah. happened all the time. And I, sometimes I would just return it. I'm like, I don't feel like having this conversation. We'll just, we'll, we'll just pretend like I am whoever you thought I was. And, you know, it was just, it, it was a strange, surreal experience to be kind of like, and the other thing is like, then people are wondering like, so why are you a Lance Corporal? Like, what did you, what right. did you mess up? <laughs> What kind of NJP story do you have that you're just? And I'm like, I never got NJP. I was just, I was just an old guy with the the mosquito wing chevrons for PFC to Lance Corporal, and I got out as a corporal. So I never progressed past corporal. So that was in that whole way. I always was, like you said, not being a poser, but always kind of in a couple of different roles that were that were interesting. What was the upside for you? What were you enjoying about the Marines? What was the value add to you to be in the Marines? I never would have pushed myself out of the comfort zone that I had found myself in without mm-hmm. the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you almost don't want. It's like the Marine Corps is really good at doing doing things their way, and you don't even want to give them credit for it because it was really unpleasant in a variety of different ways. <laughs> From boot camp all the way through to the last day you're in there, they they it's 
I'd like to say it's all intentional. I don't think it's all intentional. It's just, it's just the beast that it is. And, you know, before the Marine Corps, I was a teacher. I kind of knew what I knew and I knew what I was doing wasn't working. You know, I was drinking very heavily. I was not being a good husband. I was not being, I didn't know what the world was. And the Marine Corps throws you into the situation where, yeah, we love, nobody likes to tell boot camp stories. You sound like a doofus. But it's undeniable that that's where it starts, that you get put in these positions like, who the heck likes waking up at? We were waking up at 2.45 in the morning to be online, to have showered and everything, to be online at four, to go through a full day just to you know go to sleep at eight and then be up doing fire watch all night just to redo it the next day. And that's it just continues from there through your first unit where you're doing these. You know, we used to do our our annual H, our annual training, our AT over the summer. You'd be out for anywhere from two weeks to a month in some field somewhere, freezing your butt off, or you know, just incredibly uncomfortable. And and putting myself in those situations set me up for everything that's come afterwards. You know, and that's everything from patrol base abate to literature of war, the other foundation I volunteer with to. Uh, even my career in EMS, you know, I, I never, I was such a germaphobe hospitals, everything grossed me out. And when one of the things that happened when I moved down to South Carolina to do my MFA program was I got interested in the fire department and, and emergency medical services. I got certified as an EMT. Next thing you know, I'm running full cardiac arrests on the, on the streets of Dorchester County. Uh, that, or even just going, or, or not, it doesn't need to be the high adrenaline calls, or, or just going into somebody's uh, a hoarder's home who hasn't left their house in a month and is having a diabetic episode. And, and the, I never could have done that before the Marine Corps. That that was so far removed from my comfort zone of of just the grossness of that situation. That that's what I credit the Marine Corps with doing is is forcing me to be in an uncomfortable position and showing that it's possible to do that to actually not only do that but thrive in that environment. Do you need that do you need the discomfort now do you, does it help your writing to go hey i'm not just sitting here navel gazing and marinating yes. in my own juices yeah if there's one thing that i noticed going back to my mfa program uh, i don't mean this in a, in a mean-spirited way but the cool thing about mfas is that you will be in a classroom undergrad it's going to be mostly people fresh out of high school yeah you'll have some people who are a little bit older but mostly you're you're talking young same age group as you you get to grad school you're going to have kids who are 22. You're going to have people who are 45. You're going to have people who served in the military. You're going to have people who uh, were scientists and are having a career change. You know, those, these are all personalities I've met. And this one thing that you'll see is like some kids, they just, they, they're still living with their parents. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what I did. But there yeah. is a difference of like, they just haven't gotten to that point where they're, they're out on their own yet. And, and it, a lot of times it does show. Uh, I know that's like an unpopular, I said that to somebody once and they were not happy with me and they said that it was very uh, obnoxious of me to have such, but, but it's true. Yeah. That it's like, I think that's incredibly inflammatory. I mean, yeah, you're going to notice that that's going to yield a different personality type, different expectations. Yeah. I mean, that's not wildly controversial. I don't think. Yeah. Sometimes you you meet a person who just hasn't had their, have been kicked in the face yet by life. Yeah. Yeah, as simple as that. Sometimes you need to you need to be uncomfortable. You need to fail. You need to be embarrassed and coming. And it's not just them. I don't think you need to go join the Marine Corps to achieve that. I mean, I remember I wrote my my senior year. I was working on a short story that was about uh, it was about a conversation between an Uber driver and a guy who worked on Wall Street. And I put that in quote doing the air quotes right now, because that's what I, I in my head. It was like and my dad worked in finance and he. 
I had this guy in my mind of who worked on Wall Street, whatever that means. And I put, you know, whatever, I put that story away years later after working in finance for a couple of years, I came back and read this and I was like, God, this is awful. Like, this is just a cardboard cutout of what somebody who thinks, who's never seen the inside of an office, right? So no, you don't need to go and join the Marine Corps. That's one option, but there's other, you know, it's, you get out there and you experience different things and then you can come back and like you said, it's not navel gazing anymore. It's actual lived experience. Talk about (laughs) Maybe we're kind of shifting gears hard, but going from the boot camp experience to going to the MFA experience. So what's that splash of water in the face? And and I imagine culturally, like you said, you know, uh emotionally and then skill-wise, like, yeah, what was that process like when you actually got into it? Yeah, I mean it's it's completely different, right? Like you're talking, like I said, an MFA program, it's it nobody should go in thinking I'm gonna have this fancy degree that I can hang on my wall. I, I, my degrees in my closet somewhere. That's not why I went there. It yeah. was not to put letters at the end of my name. It's such a misconception. It is time to slow down and write. It's it's busy. It's not like you're not just wandering around the field pontificating, searching right. for your, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're going to work hard. You're going to take classes. You're going to probably have to have some kind of job, uh, look for a fully funded program. Uh, there's tons of opportunities for funding out there where you don't have to take on a loan or anything crazy like that. But it's time to really just like not like like when I was living in Manhattan or I was living in Queens working in Manhattan, I was writing in the early morning and late at night. I was writing in the odd hours where I could fit it in and and trying to pursue this thing around my an MFA program is a really unique experience to sit in a be surrounded by writers who actually want to focus on art and and talk about art and, and you can really hone in on your craft. Harris Island is just like you're here. We're literally going to drag you by the scruff of your neck through this experience, and you're going to be a Marine by the end of it, whether you like it or not. <laughs> like right. It's just a completely right. different different world. Um, and the thing about the MFA is like you can get really – there's this paralysis by analysis that can mm-hmm. kind of take on. If you're not – I've had a lot of friends talk about how they're like basically incapable of writing for a little while after they graduate because yeah. yeah. they're just like – they're so inundated with all this theory and it, it can take a little bit of the fun out of it. Right. Uh, so there's Paris Island took the fun out of a lot of things too. So there's a little bit of overlap there, yeah, um, yeah. but the I went to the college of Charleston. That was my MFA program. And I like, I would do it all over again, the exact same way. The, the support that I received from my professors and my classmates was, you know, you can lose perspective and, and you can get very, it's kind of like, it's a family, a little dysfunctional yeah. family at times that can happen, but I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. You know, I, I came in in the middle of the pandemic too. So it was mm-hmm. kind of an odd experience moving from New York city down to Charleston where I, I'd never been to Charleston before. I literally just loaded up the van. My brother, wow. loaded up my car, we drove down, dropped me off. And I, I, I felt at home pretty quickly. You know, that, that kind of a support network is, is really important and and it's essential i'd say why were you comfortable applying to college to uh, college of charleston did well, you try, uh, apply to mississippi again or what was going on I, with that good question i didn't apply to miss i applied to these i think it was 18 programs this time oh, wow. around. yeah so you I weren't fucking around like, you were like you're going to an mfa program no matter what yeah I, like i said so with that temp job i got i was working at morgan stanley in the in the back office kind of doing the back office work and i was like it was a friend of mine who got me the job who really helped me out after i left that software company i told him 
this is my plan. I'm going to take a year to like look at every MFA program in the country. And at the time there was like 75, 80 that were fully funded. There's even Mm -hmm. more, but I was looking at fully funded programs that offered ample amount of funding. So I wouldn't have to take on debt. I could use the Montgomery GI bill for, to make up some of it. And I had a, a, my grandmother actually knew that I was serious about it. And don't like, I remember when I found out I got into the college of Charleston, they, they're not fully funded, but they had enough funding that I, I could cover most of it. So I'd applied to all, by the way, I applied to all 18 programs. I got into two and I got waitlisted at one of those. Wow. So wow. skin of my teeth, wow. even with 18, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Cause I yeah. wanted to, I wanted to do like 40 originally. And my, I spoke to a mentor from Gettysburg and he was like, you are absolutely insane. That is unnecessary. The application fees alone, you're going to drop like three grand. I was wow. like, okay, I'll do 18. And I did, I was 18. I got into, I got waitlisted somewhere and I got into the college of Charleston and I, you know, I was like, well, I can't, I can't, I don't know if I can cover this last bit of the tuition. I, I was speaking to my grandmother who was, you know, that was the side my, my grandfather, who was the Marine. This was his, mm-hmm. his wife, my grandmother, since I was a little kid scribbling in notebooks was my biggest fan, always supportive. And I, I told her, I was like, I don't think it's happening. I think I need to wait another year and reapply. Cause I, I and she was like, well, I've been thinking about it. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you this money and you're going to go there. And I was, I said, no, I was like, no, 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 no. Like, you don't need to do that. You're like, that's a, and she said, no, I want to do this. I said, grandma, that's really considerate of you, but like, it's, it's fine. I can just take another year. And she was like, you're not listening to me. It's my money. I can do with it what I want. You're going to take the money. You're going to go to Charleston. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. I can, you know, when somebody wants to lend a helping hand, I can, I'm not too prideful to say no. And that was kind of those factors combining was why I was like, all right, we're doing this. You know, have you gone back and looked at what you submitted, like your writing samples in those applications? Like, could you look back and you go, I see why I got rejected from 16 of the 18 now, or, or do you think there's something else that was going on? So it's a, yeah, there's no way to know for certain. Right. Uh, I haven't looked back at my stuff. What I can tell you is that, so one of the, my, my top program was the university of Michigan. Um, the Helen, I think it's the Helen Zell program is the, the full name. That is, I think I was looking at it, like there's listings you can find for like what the biggest program, what the top program, whatever. And I really liked a couple of factors about the the town that it was in, as well as kind of some of the writers who had graduated from there, like Gia Talentino had graduated from there. I was reading a lot of her stuff at the time. And I got a rejection from them, but it was a special rejection that was like, personally addressed. And I was told that I'd made it into like, they'd had, this is the other thing is the MFA programs, especially the fully funded one have that, like not kidding, thousands of people, hundreds of people applying for six, seven spots. So the odds are just against you from regardless of what kind of a writer you are. And this rejection said that, let me know that I made it into like, they'd had one or 2000 applicants this year and they'd had so many spots and I'd made it into like the 15% top, Mm. whatever. Wow. And it's a rejection obviously, but I still have that saved somewhere because it felt like some weird form of that. Writing is such a isolating experience. You're just always by yourself with the pen and paper, trying to take what's in your brain and somehow get it onto the page. People I know have been published will say like, by the time I got published, I've already moved on emotionally from it. So it's such a weird craft. And there's so few moments of like real validation that that honestly, even though it was like a thanks, but no thanks, it felt validating in that, in that way. So I, I never went back and read my sample 
but I felt like I put my best foot forward and I knew it's kind of tough just, just at a baseline level to get into these programs. So, so let's talk about the validation. <clears throat> I mean, you've clearly thought a lot about <laughs> taking an MFA and, and pursuing it. Why? What, and, and I say that in the context of it is, you know, well, it was 2020, 2021, you know, people were self-publishing, if nothing else, you're friends with the dead reckoning guys. Like, I mean, there's options out there to just start writing and putting content out there, but you really wanted to go through that MFA wicket. Why? What was the, what was important about that to you? So great question. And I think about it pretty frequently, even today. Uh, like I said, so applied to those first those first three years, kept getting rejected, abandoned it. My friends were saying it's not worth it. I said, oh, it's all I needed to hear, walked away from it. So then the question becomes like, well, why the hell did you come back years later when you know I was I wasn't crushing it in the in the financial world, but I I had options that I could have a very I could have a career there, you know. Yeah. I had, but I was unhappy and I was I was very not just uh, unhappiness doesn't, that's not the right, it's unfulfilling, you know, and I'm not saying that finance in general, for me personally, it was unfulfilling. I wasn't, I wasn't feeling the sort of, you know, like I said, I was going through a divorce. I was getting sober at the time. It was a lot of, a lot of stuff changing. And for me is I, I, so I'd had at Gettysburg, my senior year, I'd had the cool opportunity to do, you know, you do a thesis, right. I was an English major, but because I was a I was specializing in fiction writing. They started this new program where you could do a creative thesis. So I had gotten the opportunity to actually start a novel, mm-hmm. bring that in for my thesis. And it was about a fictional civil war town based on Gettysburg. And it's, it was narrated by a dead historian who's kind of in death is now able to see time and space. And he's realizing all the things he got wrong as his career as a historian. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. able to kind of see the truth and trying to get at the truth of what this battle actually meant for the country. And, so on and so forth. So I was working on this novel and I'd given up on it like three or four times, you know, just sort of starting it, stopping it, starting it. But around the time of divorce time, getting sober time, I fell back in love. I wasn't writing either during that time either. Like I just completely, not only abandoned the MFA, I kind of briefly, oh, really? yeah, I was just not okay. right. I, I was not in a good place. And the cool thing about getting sober is like you're actually in a lot of pain pretty much immediately. Worse than actually when mm. you were were abusing whatever it was you were abusing, there's just like everything becomes crystal clear and you begin to realize just how messed up your life is. And so the only thing I could really figure out to do was just to write and not write about what was going on, but write right. like the story that I've been trying to. And I managed to finish this novel or what I felt was finished. And I'd got it in front of an agent and this agent I had not expected a response or anything. I'd gone to a conference where the, for a couple like extra 50 bucks or something, you could sit with an agent and pitch mm-hmm. your novel. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear that they were like, this is just a pitching exercise. There's a slight tiny chance that if they like it, they might ask to see the manuscript, but they're going to basically say like, okay, here's how you should change your pitch. Like you did good here, but you really need to emphasize. I sat down with this agent and at the end of it, he's like, that's actually... I want to read this, send it over to me. And I was like, that idea of validation, I was like, Oh my God, like, is this about to happen? Am I about to become a published writer? The answer is no. But once again, this, like he wanted the fact that anybody even wanted to read the whole thing. And he did read some of it. He ended up saying, this is, you know, there's some good writing here, but you got to do work on some stuff. Thanks for letting me read and passed on it. That moment I was like, that was around the time where I was like, okay, got to change my priorities here. Like 
There's something we, we think about writers and so often there's like the image of the writer, right? We think of like fancy typewriters, yeah, yeah, yeah. author photos, all, all the visual stuff that's, that comes and goes, right? That that's very short lived for me. It's, it's the stories and the storytelling. And while yes, having an agent say, I'm interested in this when I, when I really started investigating it, it's storytelling. And that's why I like, I kept coming back to that, going back to my grandmother, when I was a little kid, my happiest memories were at like the Christmas party, listening to her tell stories about her parents. And when her and my grandfather first got together and all these things that like, that is what draws me to writing, right? The, yes. The validation of like getting into a fancy MFA program, getting a novel published, winning an award. That's cool. Uh, that's not what it is at its baseline for me. What it is, is it's, it's the stories that we tell each other, the stories that we tell ourselves and how narrative really shapes so much of our identity and who we are in the world. That's really abstract, right? That's a re- you can't really make, make a living off of that necessarily. That's something I kind of hold in my, my, my chest and my, my heart and I just keep it there, but it's, that's where it's leads from. And it's like, okay, well, if you want to do this, here are a couple of different things you can do to kind of make it a little more valid, a little more professional, go and get an MFA. People is it the end all be all? No, it's not. Like I said, it's time to write, but people will take you a little more seriously. Unfortunately, that's the way it is sometimes. I'm not saying you need it. I'm not, there's more than one way but for me and kind of the personality that I am. I was looking at it. I was like, if I can figure out a way to make this work, I think it would be very beneficial. And that was kind of what started me on that, that path. Do you need structure as a writer? Does it help you to have structure and to help you to have go, Hey, I've been through an MFA program. I kind of know some left and right limits of how to proceed on a blank page or how to troubleshoot work that I've done. So I've got a bit of a framework. I'm not just completely spitballing this by myself, losing my fucking mind. Pretty much. Um, It's a balance. Sometimes I need a break and I just kind of, I just do my own thing. I don't really, I don't set myself up with a specific schedule, but I am an early riser. I like to be up around five a lot of the time get the writing in early in the day. Um, I do have a little bit like pretty much always start with a pen and paper, not on a computer. Mm. Um, I like, it's like a blank canvas. I like to be able to, I don't write chronologically a lot of the time, which is, so yes, I do start on pen and paper, but I always have my, my notes app going on my phone. If I, if I get an idea, I'm, I just always make sure there's ample ways of putting it down, whether that's a cocktail napkin and a Mm. pen, or my notes app or something, just get it down. Um, it's, it's a weird sort of push and pull between, yes, I have structure, but I try not to be too rigid about it because then it becomes, it's, we're not building Ikea furniture here. You know what I mean? There's not like a step-by-step process to do this. Uh, every time I think I'm starting to think I know a thing or two, I usually find that I don't, and I need to kind of just keep that open-minded childlike kind of just follow Follow whatever thoughts inspire you. Don't uh, don't hoard things. It's like another big thing I've, I've learned over the last couple. Like sometimes I'll be like, that's a great image. I'm going to put that in my back yeah. pocket when the big novel oh, comes. Oh, yeah. I'll never do that. Take it right out of the back pocket. Put it into whatever you're writing at the time. That was my professor, uh, Takira Madden. She was one of my a really big influence on me at the College of Charleston. That was one of her big things is don't save anything. If you have something, put it into whatever you're working. Do not hold back. Um, but there is this sort of like, I need to, I need to kind of make time for it and be deliberate in the way that I approach, approach it that way. How much is your job 
now as an EMT? How much does that help you? Not just emotionally. I think we talked about that. But like it helps to have that that kind of juxtaposition in life, but subject matter, character, smells, sensory stuff. Like, does that help? Tremendously. Um, you know, obviously you think EMS 911, people want to know about the the crazy stories, the traumatic stories. Uh that's actually not for me personally, not where the it's the best job in the world for a writer because you're constantly showing up to people's homes and you're getting to walk at somebody's house <laughs> and they weren't expecting to see you, <laughs> you know? Now it's not always a crazy emergency. A lot of time I'd say actually the majority of the time it's not an emergency. It's a whole separate subject, but you get this opportunity. The writer, George Saunders, another one of my favorite writers, he said that the most impactful job he had growing up as a kid was as a delivery driver for his dad's chicken restaurant. Um, this was before the days of Uber Eats or any of that stuff. It was literally, they would call the restaurant. It was all cash. And he said the best moment was he would show up, he would give them the food and they'd say, let me grab your cash. And the doors open and he gets this, this view into this person's life for just a brief moment where, you know, he sees the mail sitting there on the counter. He sees what they've chosen to hang on the wall. EMS is like that on steroids. Cause I come walking in and I can't help, but not notice like all the stuff that's everywhere. You know, uh, that is where I get, like, you, you just start to see so much of the world just by, and I'm in a, I'm not in some crazy city, you know, I'm not even in Charleston. Like I said, I'm North of Charleston some pretty rural areas. I mean, I'm talking families who have lived here for like 150 years on the same plot of land. Wow. It's, it's, it's an experience unlike any other, uh, as far as getting to meet people. Cause everybody calls 911 too. You know, you go into yeah. some of the fanciest houses in the area and you go into, you go into derelict shotgun shacks and everything in between. And that has been, uh, it's it's rough in a lot of ways for a lot, a lot of obvious ways, but for a writer, yeah, there's few jobs that are better. I want to dive further into the granularity of that. So as a New Yorker, moving to South Carolina, now immersing yourself huh, almost literally in the bloodstream of South Carolina, can you write, can you still have voices in your head that are not around you? Because that's a very specific culture. So I imagine when you're sitting down to write, are you, is it harder for you to reach back and find other characters because the dialogue and the verbiage and the semantics and the syntax that you hear is all so regional now, or is, has that been an issue at all? Uh, not really. It definitely, I, I mean, I'm for, I'll forever be a displaced Yankee down here, you know, and it's, I've been made aware of that by several people, but, but the South is changing too. There's so it's, it's New Yorkers, New Jersey, and Ohio. We've infiltrated the South and nobody's happy about it down here. And it, it is what it is. Uh, it is a very specific culture. I try and be respectful of that and realize that, you know, I, in many ways I'm an outsider, uh, I feel at home here though. I feel like I feel very welcome, but it is like having that self-awareness of like, just kind of, for me, I couldn't even write about Charleston until I'd been here for a, a full year. And that's not a personal rule. I just, I literally, you know, every day you're here, you're becoming slightly less of a tourist, but really not in a lot of ways. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like, I still write about New York all the time and New York's a totally different beast because I didn't grow up in Manhattan. I grew up on Long Island. Sure. I moved to Queens. I didn't grow up in Queens. And that's a whole universe within and of itself, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I, it's, it's. I think it comes down to having that self awareness and knowing and and showing that respect and just keeping that in the back of your head as you're approaching some of those things. But I mean, the experiences are 
the experiences are what they are. You know, I just try and, and try and convey that to other people as honestly as I can and not, uh, not get a little, uh, not be a predator about it and try and steal from people. You know? Sure. Sure. I mean, I guess I'm thinking specifically of like characters and dialogue mm-hmm. that when it comes down and if you just have those, that dialogue in your head when you're writing, but it's like, God damn, I haven't been around those type of people in a while. Like I'm around this now and it maybe yeah. seems different. I don't know. I could see that in my head being an issue, but I don't know if that actually is how that's played out. It's it's fine. Yeah. I haven't really thought about it that much. I mean, I, it hasn't been an issue for me. Maybe I'll be thinking about it more. I mean, <laughs> when I go yeah. home and see my friends from Queens and from Long Island, the, the accents, it's just, it comes right back to me, you know? Okay. And I, I feel like, I don't know. It doesn't bug me that much. If somebody reads my stuff and says, what the heck is this guy think he's doing? I would love to love to know about it. But like dialogue is one of those things that's just in and of itself, pretty, pretty challenging. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll be thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) Not to make you super self-conscious of or anything now, but yeah, that was the thought that crossed my mind. Um, So let's talk about your, your battle rhythm kind of right now. Are you, do you write every day now? Pretty much. Yeah, in some capacity or another, I try and make it at least for at least an hour. Um, my friend Luke Ryan, who's one of the who mm. works for Coffee or Die, Black Rifle guy, and he's been published by Dead Reckoning. He's got the five minute rule that you can do anything for five minutes a day, and he right. tries to sit down. And I love that because, yeah. like I said, you got to be. I, I I actually do believe in the 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 benefit of stepping away and just letting, just kind of not thinking about it for a little while. Uh, but like I said before, it's a push and pull. And I think those moments should be few and far between. Often I like to wake up early and just get something on the page. Don't set the stakes too high. It doesn't need to be like, you don't need to finish a novel in the morning, but I need to sit down and get something on the page. Look at something I'm working on. I usually have, geez, I'm looking at my whiteboard right now. And there's like 10 different things on 10 different projects. I'm working on everything from shorter stories, essays to, uh, bigger projects, but yes, I do like to make sure I get something in. So without, you don't have to reveal the secrets of your whiteboard, but what, where is your focus then? Are you trying to build stuff to submit to magazines? Are you working on novels? Like what, what should we be expecting from you in the near future? Well, yeah, I'm working on some shorter pieces, some essays um, that I've been interested in exploring for a while. But the big project I've been working on is a, is a novel currently titled Zone Rouge. It's about over in France right now, they're still today cleaning up the ordinance from World War I, like actively, like the government is still discovering a hundred years on. Uh, they're mostly they're mostly duds now. It's a lot of fragments. It's a lot of shrapnel, but they are still every once in a while stumbling upon these, these um, live artillery rounds that were shot out of cannons a hundred years ago and were defective and are still, you know, for a year, for decades, it was killing people. You know, farmers couldn't go back to their farmlands. They were accidentally running them over with their plows. If they started campfires or anything, they would set these explosives off and not like blow themselves up and not even know hand grenades rolling into plows and and, and damaging equipment. The, the stories are wild. And I'm just fascinated with this concept that there's people out there whose job it is to like go find, they're living their lives, right? These are former EOD individuals yeah. who served in the military and now have this job working for the government and they're completing a task that's projected to take another several hundred years you know that's what the government thinks is like this that we're going to be finding these things for something like the battle of Verdun, where this novel is set this little town in france northeastern france 
65 million artillery shells were shot between French and German. I think that's 65 million numbers. Pretty, that's the estimate um, in like 11 months. And they're still finding them like tons every year. And it's that, that this, the Sisyphean journey of like rolling that rock all the way to the top of the hill. And then it rolls back down and you just got to restart. Like what keeps a person going in a profession like that? And that's what I've been. A, a chapter was published in Black Rifles magazine um, last summer. A chapter from that, um, which was pretty cool to see some interest in it. And I'm trying. I'm trying to get that ready to for publication at this point. So I'm looking for an agent actively. Got you. So all the more, re- yeah, all the more reason. I kind of going back to what we talked about before. I'm like, you're in South Carolina writing about UXO guys in France, and it's like. I mean, you know, besides the fact that every writer's going to have to try to, you know, project stuff onto their subjects, try to put themselves in their shoes. A French UXO guy, I mean, I'm like, man, I don't even, I don't know where that dialogue started. I don't know how, what the, you're like, where do you go with that? Like, what was that journey like for you kind of getting in that headspace? Yeah, it was a challenge for, right. I mean, like I said, I was pulled in by this idea because I'd gone there. I, I, went on, I went to Verdun on a backpacking trip. I was going through Europe and I was like, oh, I want to see a World War I battlefield. And I stopped off there for literally like five hours. It was yeah. like literally one train stop, going to explore town, get back on the train, move on. And I found out about this ongoing ordinance cleanup project. I was like, what? How is that possible? And it stuck with me. And it was, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure my way out into the story. I could not. I tried a couple of times and I was like, whatever. That was 2000, I think it was 2012 and that I went went through there. And I, after that, it wasn't until when I got down here in South Carolina that I sat down to sit. And the way I did it was I, I was like, okay, I am not going to pretend like I know what it's like to be French or even start there. I'm going to write. I, I don't know what it's like to clean up World War I ordinance. I wasn't EOD even when I was in the military. But I do know what it's like to spend 12 hours on a truck driving around a, a location, mm-hmm. kind of going to emergencies. So there's probably some similar start there mm-hmm. from that foundation. And then it just came down to, I mean, the cool thing is like Google as a writer is your friend. It's so much easier now to explore things from very far away and immerse yourself yeah. in, a in a way that, I, listen, some people would say that's that's not good enough. I might agree with that, but it's what I have. Right. And I was by this idea of these people are doing this day in, day out. They literally, I mean, yeah, they're comfortable with it. Like anybody who served in the military, you get very comfortable with things that some people be like, you do what for a living? That's true. But it's, you can't deny the fact that at any moment, these guys could show up to work, accidentally knock into something and blow themselves. You know, that's it. Right. So what keeps a person like, how? what kind of a mind functions that way? And at that point, you're getting, in my opinion, down below anything that's cultural. Right. There definitely are cultural elements that followed later. And I did go back actually back in February. I went there for uh, went to Verdun for a week and I just lived mm-hmm. there tried to interact with as many people as I could. Once again, bumbling American tourists who could barely speak French, <laughs> but everybody received me very well. People were actually very, very kind, even though I butchered their language. And I mean, that's just the, the, the challenge of being a writer. You know, people are so obsessed with authenticity. And I agree. I am, too. But at, at the same time, it's like if you're telling me a good story, right? Tim O'Brien always says it's, it's a magic show, right? You're, you're creating an illusion of sorts. Right. You're not, it's not reality. Reality is reality. This is a story. If I can just pull you in with a couple of elements, readers will hopefully kind of look the other way and be like, okay, this guy definitely is not French, but the story has some other kind of truth to it. 
let, 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 I want to ask you about the business approach then that you're taking. So you said you're actively looking for an agent for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess let me ask the obvious question. Why not go through some of the obvious routes that are right in front of you to publish? What's the, what's the value of going, you know, wh- why not put it out there and let the agents find you as it goes, considering that books, whether or not they have agents, hardly ever make money anyway. So it's like, why knock myself out to go through that additional gatekeeper? What was your thought process? It's a great question. And I've thought the exact same thing. Like I said, for me, I'll feel accomplished when the story is what I want the story to be. Um, everything else is kind of out of my control. It's not mm-hmm. the easiest pill to swallow. Like you said, it, you don't get into this business to make money. That's definitely not why you do it. Uh, to answer the agent question, if the agents, everybody I've talked to, the people, my trusted counsel of people who've kind of been there, done that, you can find yourself in certain situations where you want to have somebody who's been through this negotiating certain contracts, doing that kind of thing. That's how you get the best, the best representation is to get a good agent in order to do that. You know, I'm not interested in self-publishing because I mean, I could, we could get off this call and I could go self-publish right after this if I wanted to. It's not mm-hmm. to me. Right. I'm not knocking self-publishing. I think it's a fascinating development in the publishing world that's happened over the last 10 years or so. And it's, it's, it's just not for me. Like, I'm not interested in marketing myself that way. I don't want to take on Like, I don't really like social media. I do it. I, you know, right. it's kind of a necessary part of life, but it's not my happy place. So the less of that I can do, the better. If I can find somebody who's going to be able to be like, here's the best route for you. That seems like, you know, if you're trying to be a writer, like have a career as a writer, you're probably going to want somebody who can represent you in that way. Um, I hope, I hope. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause I, I just, so my dad, I mean, this is my full disclosure. I mean, my dad was, I mean, he, he held off on his novel for 40 years, working it, getting ready and had just trying to find an agent. But that was when that was all you had. And I'm right. like, son of a bitch. I'm like, man, nowadays I'd have been like, dude, just get it the fuck out there. Like, go, like, what are you waiting on? Uh, because, because then even when we got to the agents, it was like, they're good. They wanted them to hustle anyway. And I was like, right. oh, okay. So basically you just went through all those wickets to end up doing the same stuff you would have had to do anyway. And I'm like, fuck man. Like it, and it just, it, I mean, it ultimately literally killed him. Um, <laughs> but you know, it was, but that's, uh, so it, again, not to knock it. I mean, God bless. Um, you know, I, I, I just see so many talented people that have been able to go, Hey man, I don't know what in this, in this market in this kind of, you know, flattened market where there's so much more, um, ease of entry, you know, then it's like, ah, you know, go there. And if I'm good, I'm just gonna keep churning stuff out and people are going to find me and stuff will happen or whatever. But I'm saying this now academically, because I don't know, I'm not walking that path the way you are. So I'm just interested in what you're seeing. I, and listen, I, I, my tune has changed significantly. Like I've started publishing things left and right. I've been doing more actively of seeking things like, you know, some, some, some professors I had said, do not like, if you worked hard on a piece, you got to set your sights very high. Don't settle for less. Once again, air quotes, because there's this mm-hmm. attitude that's archaic that like, oh, if, if it's not the New Yorker, then it's, oh, that 
I, I don't agree with that either. And I have started like there's a chance. I'm not saying I'm definitely getting an agent. I'm saying I I'm going to try this for a little while. And there's a very high chance that I'm going to be like, this is stupid. This is this model isn't working for the industry at large, let alone for me. So why why am I wait like you said? Why am I wasting the time going through all these wickets? I'm there. There's a good chance I'll, I'll look for you know. There's other opportunities out there as well, not just self publishing, but you can look at smaller presses who have. Well, yes, yeah. Yeah. They have like open submission periods where they'll publish a novel or a collection of poetry or whatever it is. And that that's on my mind as well. So I'm not saying I'm hard fast with it. I'm trying it out for now, seeing what the experience is like. Uh, but there's there's a good chance. I know tons of writers who at this point are just they they don't even dip their toes in that water for all the same reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, that's that's a I'm interested to see how that plays out. Um, I feel like I did not spend enough time diving into your marine journey so i want to go back to that um let me start in the best way set way i can segue this how did the marines play into your writing how did that impact your writing at all or was it really two parallel lines of effort and just helped you as a human but didn't directly impact your writing no i mean similar to what i was saying before about getting outside of your comfort zone is you're thrust into this group of this, you know, Uncle Sam's misguided children, right? That's like one of the one of the little euphem, one of the euphemisms or acronyms that mm. the people like to apply to USMC. And that's for inspiration as far like you you need to get out of your own head as right. I really believe that and meet people outside of your little group of friends. Marine Corps is a great place to do that. Definitely not the only one, but it's a good one. And that and on top of that, I got by serving in the Marine Corps, I met Marines. I met people like Mac from Pipes and Pages, who's a great, who's also a Marine Corps veteran, uh, Major Thomas Schumann. You know, that's how I got involved with Patrol Base Abate. If I don't join the Marine Corps, I don't end up joining Patrol Base Abate. And that, from like a community perspective, yeah. has been instrumental, changed my the complete the trajectory of my life. Like I had no idea what I was doing with the MFA once I finished. I had no, that's part of the reason why I started getting, I was like, I need to have let me get certified as an EMT. So I have a backup plan, not a backup plan, but like the here is at least what's next. Like, I'm not just going to be sitting on my butt, not knowing what to do. And within the first semester, I got plugged in with patrol base Abate, uh, started literature of war with, with Tom Schumann. And I've got, you know, before I didn't have like as much of a community with my writing, I've got a community now with, through the Marine Corps, you know, that was that the Marine Corps intention, obviously not, but it's like, it's the old, big goofy old saying, once a Marine, always a Marine. Like it's true to an extent, like we love to hate on the Marine Corps. We bond over that, but we also like, there, there's something that down there that we all made this decision to do this. And, and I, I love meeting other people like that and being able to relate and across other branches, the military in general, across other branches as well. But the Marine Corps definitely set me on this path whether they meant to or not, where I've, I've found a community that I feel uh, very, very much a part of. So we talked about your decision not to go officer, which I completely understand. Why machine gunner? You want to be in the ship? Yeah, I mean, it sounds really, really uh, goofy a little bit, but I wanted to be infantry. My grandfather was a rifleman. Um, you know, like I said, I walked in, I was older, scored high on the ASVAP, and uh, had a college degree. They were trying to the recruiters. They want to fill certain billets. And I, I remember there was uh had something to do with satellites. I don't remember what it was. And I just kept saying no. And I was like infantry, infantry. And they were like, okay, well, you can be uh, a machine gunner or a mortarman, 0331, 0341. What do you want to do? And I was like, machine guns sound fucking awesome. Sign me up. 
And that was because <laughs> with the reserves, they have to. That's the other thing that all my active duty friends hated. If you wanted to be active duty infantry, you go O three XX, and they right. choose your position based off of whatever where you can try out. You know, for reservists, you get to because your unit is you're, you're beholden to your geographical location. Weapons Company, Second Battalion, Twenty Fifth Marines Weapons Company was stationed on Long Island, where I was. That's what they had. They had. If you want to do infantry, you could do a, you know weapons based MOS, and that was it. Okay. So I said and. Lord, I was not once again. I listen, everybody ends up becoming themselves in that in that infantry platoon. But I once again stuck out like I had these dudes who could like bench press six times as much as I could. I was a skinny, bald-headed guy. Uh they wanted me, they they kept trying to steal me for the uh the assaultment platoon or the yeah, that that MOF because they, those were the guys who had to do all the explosive stuff. And that guy, their their instructor had it out for me. He wanted you wanted me, but I was like, nope, I'm a reservist. Like I haven't screwed up so bad that they can kick me out of the, the machine gunner billet yet. So I ended up, uh, yeah, that's how I became a machine gunner. How did you feel when you actually got awarded the MOS? Did you feel like it was an accomplishment or did you feel like that was kind of in the bag and okay, moving it, on? Yeah. I mean, I did fine. Definitely from the test taking perspective, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, a, I signed up for it and it's only if you if they had some reason to kick you out could they take that away from you. So there were some other guys who I can say were pissed off because they didn't get to be they everybody wanted to be a machine gunner for the most part. I'm probably pissing off anybody who's not a machine gunner <laughs> listening to this. But you know, there were a couple I had a couple of friends who wanted that who were active duty and they ended up becoming, you know, 0311s or they were moved over to the assault men and they weren't they looked at it as like as if I didn't earn it. You know what I mean? That was kind of the attitude. And listen, I was not the fastest. I could not lift the heaviest stuff. I remember one of my probably the most embarrassing moment for me at ITB. I'll show all my cards here. I have no problem. We did one of the hikes. I can't remember which one it was. It might have been the 10K. And I got picked to be a road guard, which is like where you stand on yeah. the road and you have to, but you don't get to you stand, you guard the road, and then you have to catch up to everybody. Yeah. So I'm sprinting yeah. with the I just was not, it was just a bad day. I was not, I came in dead last with one other guy who was having a heat stroke. This guy couldn't even say his first name and I could, which made me look really bad because this guy was having a medical emergency and I was just, I was just weak. I was just having a weak day. That was one of those moments. And everybody judges you, you know, you're, you, when you're in an, a Marine Corps infantry platoon of any kind, whether it's in training or, or, or the real deal, you're judged based off of your 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 physical prowess, and that day was not a good one for me. And I remember somebody saying something. I put it. Somebody made a comment to me about how I basically didn't deserve to be there, and that was that was tough. But listen, what I lacked in physical stamina compared to some of the the brolic dudes in my platoon, I made up for being able to teach everybody because there's a bunch of tests. You have to take a whole bunch of written tests, and you know it was either tended to fall into two buckets. You were either really strong, but not that smart or really smart and not that strong. I was more of the second one. So I, I served a purpose, you know, and uh, I would do it all over again. You know, I would be in a machine gunner. Is the, there's nothing cooler to me than a 19 year old Marine machine gunner somewhere in a foreign country, kind of just doing his thing. Like, I think that is the epitome of James Dean level cool. And, uh, you know, I'd do it all over again if I could. Um, did you deploy? No, <laughs> we almost, so I think Steve Callahan was on this podcast. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. He, he was another 225 guy, but he was with a golf company out of New Jersey. And we were, I was weapons. We were on Long Island. So we had done, we were basically all told you're going to Afghanistan 
And then they downsize, like we were told, like, get ready. This is the real deal. And then they downsized that and golf company went and they picked some guys from weapons company. They like, I was a Lance Corporal at the time. I have no idea how that process works, but I remember being told like, don't tell anybody yet, but you're going. And some of the older guys in the platoon were like, literally don't tell anybody. Cause until you have those orders, like they do this every couple of years. Sure enough. Uh, they, we ended up, a bunch of us got passed over. Um, and I never left the country. Uh, we did training various parts of the country, but I never, I never deployed. How did you feel about it? Yeah. It's that whole jarhead experience, right? Uh, right. in the immediate aftermath, I was, I felt, I felt type of way. I'll, I'll have no problem admitting that. Yeah. I got over it pretty quickly. Cause like I said, I had a lot of friends who'd been there, done that. And you, you have a certain, if, if you're paying attention, you have a certain awareness of to being the guy. You don't want to be the guy who's complaining about not having gone to see combat. Right, right. You know, my grandfather was at the Chosen Reservoir. He, we only started to hear his stories at the very end of his life. He kept a lot of that inside. He probably shouldn't have, but he was a 19-year-old kid in a very scary place, and he had no problem telling you what it was like. Uh I remember I had this weird thing where I couldn't watch war movies for like the first two months. I remember just being very, but I felt like I'd been passed over and that like this whole, you train so hard, you go through all this weird stuff and then it's all for nothing. A lot of, a lot of people have talked about that too, but very quickly I was like, well, it is what it is. You know, I was here ready, willing and able. If I didn't go, then it's time to move on to the next thing. So I didn't internalize it too much. I don't lose sleep over it now. Uh, It is what it is, you know? So getting out, was there a sense that the GWAT essentially is over? Probably nothing else is happening. And at this point, you're just going there just to get yelled at every one week in a month. And what's the point? Pretty. I mean, so when I moved from New York to South Carolina, they were trying to convince me. And this is another reason why I was like, reason 672, I'm not reenlisting, was they told me you can't transfer units. And I'm like, how stupid do you think I, I know what the regular, like, I know what the rules are and you can't make me fly back to New York once a month to get paid not enough money, right? You make, I, as a corporal, I was making less than like 250 bucks yeah. a drill week. I'm like, that's, the, you are, in t- you are allowed to, to put in a request to transfer units. And this staff sergeant was lying to me. And so I was like, I went and just did everything myself, submitted all the paperwork, got approved. I transferred to a unit in South Carolina and I didn't transfer to an infantry unit. I transferred to a supply unit because I knew I was not reenlisting. And I had like a year to go. The nearest infantry unit was like two or three hours away from Charleston. I was like, it's not my time. I was winding down. I mean, yeah. some people probably be like, oh, where's your motivation? It's like, I don't know. I think I left it on Long Island. I'm sorry. Like I knew I was getting out. Listen, yeah. I, the Marine Corps, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. It was, it, like I said, had a profound effect on my life. I never planned on being in for my entire life. It was yeah. my time to get out. I remember my last day, I got down to the supply unit. They were so much easier going. It was such a culture shock, with, even within the reserves, to go to a unit where I wasn't getting yelled at all the time, where things were very respectful and casual and not all this kind of craziness all the time. And I, But I remember my last day was, jeez, uh, they, they let me... It was called an RIDT where you you kind of you reschedule your drill date. So it's not once a month. You can reschedule if you can't make that particular weekend, which also is a thing I was not told was a thing when I was in New York. Um, and they allowed me to schedule like a full week. I went in for a, a standard work week just to burn the last like three months of my drill time and I could get out a little bit early. So I went in, I was working in a motor pool. 
it was a Friday. I came in and this particular unit just kind of Fridays were very like you show up for 10 minutes and everybody basically went home, did PT and then went home. And I went up to the S shop and I was like, I think I'm here to check out. And it was just one sergeant. She was <laughs> sitting there and she was like, oh, yeah, cool. Let's see your paperwork. And then I turned that in. She's like, OK, so this is your contact information. This is correct. And I said, yep. And she said, all right, you're good. Have a good day. I was standing there. I was like, oh, OK, th that's it. And she's like, yeah, you're done. And I just like turned around. I walked out and I was like, that's it. Six years. <laughs> My time in the Marine Corps wow. is over. Wow. <laughs> You know, and that was, you know, I let myself out through the back door, got in my car and, you know, that was, that was my last day in the Marine Corps. It's kind of surreal in some ways. When did you stumble into PB Abate? How did you find out about it? Yeah. So that was my, it was like November, 2020, again, finishing up the first semester of my MFA program. I've been following Tom's um, kill zone page. Yeah. For some time at that point, because he talked about Matterhorn. I'd loved, I'd read Matterhorn when I was an undergrad, loved it. And he put this thing out like call to action. We're looking for volunteers. I had no idea what it was. I was like, oh, I was looking into it. I was like, oh, maybe I don't think that I could fit into this. And I was like, oh, wait, they're looking for like any special interests. So I was like, well, I like writing. I'm trying to be a writer. Sent off an email, forgot about it. A couple of weeks later, they got in touch with me and they're like, hey, do you want to do this? We're, we're thinking about starting a book club. Uh, we're looking for somebody to lead it. Uh, you and another veteran are going to be doing this. And I said, sure. We jumped on a Zoom call just like this. It was, I, from my memory, less than five minutes. Tom didn't even turn his camera on. I think he was driving somewhere. And he was like, all right, yeah. I, why do you want to do this? I said, well, this is, I'm at the College of Charleston getting my MFA. I'm interested in writing. I'm trying to be a writer, blah, blah, blah. He said, okay, cool. Good enough. Just send us your DD-214 and uh, have at it. I remember getting off the call. I called my brother and I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to like join this like veterans organization. We're going to start a book club or something. He's like, what, what are you going to, what are you going to be teaching? And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't think they asked that on the zoom call. <laughs> they'll probably give me something and come to find out, you know, the cool thing about being part of patrol base Abate is the sky really is the limit. Like Tom, as a leader, he's like, if you have a good idea, he's going to offer the maximum amount of support and say, go do it. But that's it. Like he's going to say, go do it. And then you're on your own, you know? So if you're kind of the kind of person who has a cool idea and you want to put it into practice, there are ample opportunities to do that. And very quickly, you know, we started doing zoom calls and then we started out in Montana. We'll be doing that again this summer in June. Uh, we're looking forward to that, you know, but all of a sudden I'm sitting down with these writers who I'd been reading. Like Carl Mar Marlantis yeah. came out with us last year, hung out with us. Great guy, really cool dude. Uh, you know, friggin' Elliot Ackerman, Stephen Pressfield, Bing West, all these writers that I've mm. knew about, I'm now sitting down exchanging emails with. I mean, once again, wouldn't change it for the world. Which who who meant the most to you when you were sitting down talking? What were some of the highlights? What were some of the wave top highlights that really stood out to you? Because that is that's a lot of it's a lot of capital. That's a lot of uh, you know writing capital to sit down with folks like that. What were your takeaways? I mean, what were some of the things that you were really picking up? Was it, was it the mindset? Was it technique? Was it story? Was it experiences? What was it that was the biggest takeaway? For me, the biggest takeaway for the patrol base Abate book club is just how giving and generous all of these very established writers have been our members too. people want to be a part of this. 
and, and people want to help us. And the amount of people, whether it's an author, whether it's a person who's donating money or providing some sort of resource for us, or members just showing up and wanting to talk books, that has been the coolest thing for me is people want to be a part of this thing. And they're not, there's not a lot of what's in it for me. Uh, the authors we've worked with have been so gracious with their time, with their, with their experience, with their insights. Uh, we don't, we don't even feel a lot of people are like, Oh, you should film the zoom sessions and put them up. And we thought about it. But the thing is, is like, they really are candid sessions. They're very, yeah. the writers, like writers who, especially we, and we sit down, we sat down with self-published writers. We've sat down with people who are just starting out with their first book. We've sat down with people who've had a long career behind them. The ones who have been at this a while, they've got the party line that their agents want them to kind of talk about on a promotional book tour. When in those Zoom rooms, that doesn't happen very often. Um, a lot of times it's, it's uh, this level of honesty that's really special. Uh, and that's I'm that's I'm very invested in keeping that that vital dynamic intact and making sure it's a play because so many people were coming. And like I said, so I'm a reservist never deployed. Uh, I don't feel any type of way about it now, but when I was first starting this, like I knew about Tom, I knew about three, five, I knew about all these things. And some of these people are showing up or special forces guys. who have got all these, all the accolades, all the cool, the cool stuff, which is cool. And I'm feeling like insecure. Like, am I really the person to be leading these kind of meetings? Like with my little two ribbons. And the answer is yes. The answer is definitely yes. Because what I found come to find out is even people that I'm like, oh, this guy's such a badass. He's like sitting there stammering over his words going, well, I'm not, there's probably somebody who could say this better than me. I'm not really a poetry guy, but I'm like yeah. sitting there. Like, oh my God. Like get out of your head to me, to him, to anybody else who's showing up to this meeting. Like, just tell me what this made you feel. Start there in the most honest way that you can. And and it, if you don't feel like you have the right words, we, we can work on that later. That, that'll come with time. But show up with that honest reaction and talk about books. I mean, it's the only book club in the country where we say, you didn't even have to read the book. Just come and be a part of the conversation and listen. Yeah. You know, and it, it's been, that's been a really special uh, organization that's grown very quickly too. Do you enjoy teaching? I enjoy teaching what I like teaching. Like that's what I found okay. out when I was a sure. school teacher. I did not like the state exams. I did not like having to deal with parents who were pissed off that their kid didn't get a 95. They got a 93, that kind of stuff. The, the discipline, like I was not very good at, if a kid left to go smoke in the bathroom, like I wasn't the one who's going to go chase him down and try and play detective and figure out what happened, which was not good for a high school teacher. Like when you're in there, I'll talk about freaking Shakespeare and Catcher in the Rye all day long. We get into the, it's, it's amazing watching, especially high school kids when the light bulbs start going off and they're making, you know, they're making connections they never made before. But unfortunately, that's a smaller part of the job. I love talking about writing. I love going down rabbit holes about World War One artillery shells and little obscure villages in France. Yeah. Uh, am I a teacher at heart? I don't know. That's a. I don't know if I can answer that accurately. You know. Do you feel like, and I'm saying this because you've obviously written several, um, pretty well regarded book reviews. You had a teaching background. You went through the MFA program. I, so I'm, I'm going to say that I'm not going to have you uh, refute or, or confirm this, but I feel like you bring a lot of um, academic credibility and insight to what you do. So I wonder if you felt that there is a, um, that that's something lacking in the veteran writing space, that we've got a lot of passion, a lot of 
you know, story, a lot of experience, but having someone that can also sit there in the cool light of day and really go, yeah, but Hey, you're missing this, or you got to think about this, or what about that? Do the X's and O's a little bit. Yeah, there is definitely, there's a, there's a gap in some, in some regards. Um, I would definitely agree with that. And it comes down to this thing of like, well, I'm, I'm just coming from a place of, of authenticity and emotion. And, and that's great. That's definitely great. Uh, but that's the cathartic release, right? Like, I, like right. going back to the whole, right. Like I do have these moments where it's like, you're just flying down the page and it's all coming out. And my experience has been as like a lot of, uh, I don't, you know, there's writers out there that I know from this community who kind of stop there. That's okay. There's nothing wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but for me personally, my definition of this, this craft is it is a craft and it's a discipline. And I think there is something to be gleaned from taking it a step further and becoming, getting away from that emotional high. And it really is an emotional high yeah. and going back to that, the basics and, and trying to, to come up with a foundation and kind of, and get objective about it and, and tear into, tear into it a little bit. And we're seeing more of it now. I think Dead Reckoning Collective is a great example of honing the talent, grabbing that talent, bringing it in, and then and then and then making them do the work to go through the process to put something something out there. You know, uh, Worth Parker is another great writer. Uh, he's very open about the fact he's like, I'm okay with gatekeepers. I'm okay with it's it's not everything that you say needs to be a published thought. Like there's there's something to be said for somebody coming in and saying. You, you did great here, lose this. And we need to work on this part there. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's this, I, that's what I like. I like being a part of trying to break that down that there's this thought of like, well, there's the academic space and then there's the, the us, the real ones over here. They can be together. Yes. There is mm-hmm. definitely an issue with the academic space as well. Like I was saying, there's that paralysis by analysis that happens. There's, there's a cloistered sort of attitude towards the outside world. That is all true. But breaking down that gap and, and taking taking a little bit from both worlds is is definitely something I'm invested in. Do you think, and I'm, <laughs> this is a very leading question, do you think the veteran writing community is in danger of burning out if the skill doesn't continue to increase? That you're going to get that cathartic rush, the emotion, and then you're going to go, all right, well, I've either hit a brick wall or I'm done. And, that, and I've shot my load. And that that skill and skill development is going to be what's going to allow them to make more veterans to have a career and, and continue to write and do more things. Uh, yeah, I don't want to go. I don't want to be a fatalist and say we're in danger of burning out necessarily. But there is this sort of like we're living through a very interesting moment, right? Like the GWAT has come to an end, an official, very, uh, very horrible ending, and people have a lot of feelings about that on a over 20 years, right? Like it's a 20 year war that people are processing in a variety of different experiences, but there is that it's, it just, and I don't, I don't know. I'm also not at the the school of thought that it needs to be a career for a person. Maybe you just have one booking you and you say what you say. And, but if you're interested in, in turning this into, into, into engaging in the discipline of, of writing, there is certain work that you have to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. You don't just go to the gym once and then and then expect to look a certain way, whatever way that is. Right. Yeah. There's there's a process that that happens. A lot of times it's happening without you even realizing it. You know, when people I I guess it is because with the veteran community, you have a lot of people who went into the military straight out of high school. That wasn't my journey necessarily. So I do bring this the academic feel in some ways that some people have remarked on. But th- those 
skills are are more accessible than ever. You know, it used to be that you had to go get a college degree. There is so many programs out there that are nonprofits or small businesses where you you don't have to commit to a two or three year program. You can get these skills. You won't have the fancy degree, but who who cares about that? You know, things are changing so much with with online education and everything that I, I foresee those changing dramatically. They're not going to go away, but it's going to, I think it's going to continue to change in this way. And there's there's opportunities to do it that to do it outside of that element. But yeah, I think it's something that if you're interested in that, you need to invest in some way, monetarily maybe, but time wise definitely in building those skills. First off, thanks for taking this time and talking. I, this has been um, a blast to talk through. But yeah. I want to I want to wrap it up with a couple of um, quick things. I kicked myself if I didn't ask you. Um, first off, because you do have kind of good bird's eye view of the process and what writers should go through. What should some veteran writers, maybe even veteran writers that don't know their veteran writers yet, that have dabbled with the idea of even putting pen to paper? What are some things that they should know? What would be words of not just encouragement, but specifically um, skill-related tips that someone should keep in mind to be able to QAQC what they're doing or you know, be able to edit themselves correctly? Is there anything like that? There's a ton of programs out there. If you're, if you're getting down to the technical skills, uh, Grammarly is a great one. Just get comfortable editing yourself and get comfortable on the sentence level of looking like we speak the way writing is communication, right? And and speaking to one another is communication. And sometimes you look at a sentence and you're like, I know what this means, but when I break it down, it actually doesn't make sense at like a granular level. And that is something that will drive you a little bit batty because you'll start realizing just how bizarre communication is, how we talk and we understand each other, but we're not really playing by the rules. Nothing wrong with that. But to, And I'm not saying that you need to scrub all that from your writing, but to become aware of that and start analyzing that and being like, look at this. Am I making the conscious decision to fly in the face of grammar convention? Mm-hmm. That, that it needs to be, I think, a choice and to understand and be self-aware of the way that you're, you're, you're writing that, that whatever that piece is. Um, I think it's important to read and read widely as widely as possible, literally everything top that whatever the top Amazon pick is that you maybe you turn your nose down at, to the obscure stuff that you find at discount book racks, used bookstores, just be open to it. Now, I'm not saying you do that for your whole life, but if you're really kind of like, I have no idea where to start, just start picking things up and reading. And if you like a book, go on the person's Wikipedia page and start looking at who they were reading when they wrote it. Like I love Mm -hmm. doing, I'm such a historical nerd. I just think about things historically. That's like the way my brain works. So I always will go down these rabbit holes and I'm like, oh, this writer, he, oh, and he was friends with it. I never heard of this person. Wait, there was a whole school of like, I've never even heard of this school of thought. Like, what is this? And you start going that way. You'll start finding some really interesting stuff just by exploring. And that is how you'll end up in some interesting corners of the of the world that you probably wouldn't have been if you just read the same like five writers that everybody talks about all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, I know we talked about Worth Parker's saying, hey, not every thought should be published. Are you a fan of people putting stuff on Instagram frequently? Uh, and I, when I say you're a fan, I'm not saying whether you do it or, or, but do you think there's value in it as a writer? Do you think it helps your writing or do you think it can inhibit your writing or make you, you know, pervert your writing to fit an audience maybe that isn't in your own best interest? Fascinating 
fascinating subject, right? Social media, like I said before, I do it. I'm not really a fan of it. Uh, can obviously be used for good. At the back of my mind, whenever anybody puts something on social media, I'm wondering about the constraints that social media forces. Like you can't publish a novel on social media, or if mm -hmm. you do, you can't do it the way you could just publishing. Like Instagram, for instance, is a visual, very visual medium, right? And a lot of that's where the focus ends up being. Um, I listen, it's a free world. You can do whatever you want. That's not where I personally really go. A lot of the time I try not to post too much stuff on there. I'll post, if I get something published, I'll post something on there. Um, I think it's great for the community at large though. I think that's any resource out there. I'm not going to turn my nose up that. Um, it's just at the back of my mind, I can never, I just know that social media is this whole little weird beast and there's like so many other things going on. I just have a hard time separating one from the other when I, when I look at that stuff, but, but I'm certainly not above it in any way. I think it's, it's, I mean, that's how I've met so many people in this community. And sure. Kept in touch with them. So sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are you reading right now? Who are you into right now? Who's turning you on right now? Great question. I'm always reading Haruki Murakami. Um, I go back to his work. He's a Japanese writer. Uh, he's written a ton of novels. He kind of he's a really interesting character in the sense that he was a very into American pop culture and British pop culture during like the 80s, 70s, 80s. So he has written a bunch of novels and then translated into English. And I just he has a way of making the mundane so interesting, just like even boiling spaghetti, just as like a, the way that he describes things and like the weird thing. He's kind of he's got a little bit of a fantastical element to his writing you know cats will start talking and look mm. with two moons in the sky out of nowhere like all sorts of weird stuff is always going on so it's but it's not it's not fantasy writing either it's it's kind of straddling this in-between world of our world and something that's just out of reach in the next in the next one so that's you know somebody i'm always kind of going back to and just trying to figure out how he does it mike what's the next thing anyone should expect to see from you publicly is it an article that you have pending? Do you think the book is going to get out at some point sooner than that? What, what's the next thing people should have their eyes open for from you? Right now, Literature of War is the other nonprofit I, I run with uh, Thomas Schumann, Tyler James Carroll. We are right in the midst of our first library building campaign. For We've got five military American military units, and we're actively gathering books and donating books to them so that they can have their own on-base libraries. And beyond that, it's not just here's a bag of books, go have fun. We've, we've kind of put a little bit of thought into the books that we want these units to receive. And we want to see them engage with these texts and there'll be some type of program or essay contest or some type of way to, to, to make it, take it to the next level. So right now we, we donated our first box to a unit that's abroad out, out, out and about doing some good training in a cold place. And they just received that last week. And we're hoping to, by the end of the year, to have all five units with uh, several hundred books. So that's what I'm kind of my big push right now. Um, I, I feel like I, I'm missing an opportunity. I don't just do a follow-up question on that. What's the end goal with that? Why is that important? Why is this an important initiative? We are trying, going back to what you were saying about that, like the divide between academic and, and more the just, you know, doing it your own way. We're trying to build a library at some point. Uh, right now we're building we're donating books for libraries for units, but the end goal is to build our own library that's open to the public and staffed by uh, a residency program in which veteran writers come and they keep the library, the day-to-day -day operations going, and they're able to work on whatever project they're working on. And 
with that, we can kind of have this, it, it'll be a library that's dedicated to literature of war, but war literature in the broadest sense, right? In the sense that it could just mean a, a text that's a person at war with themselves, you know, the human condition, uh, a very widely accessible library, a physical location where people can come uh, and study and writers can come and and uh, they can have this environment to work on whatever project they're working on. So that's years in the future. It's always changing, but that's what we're we're looking at. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's going to be worthy of its own episode uh, <laughs> to talk about. Uh, Mike, how do people need to follow you? How do they need to stay in touch with you? See what you're doing when you do post stuff, um, et cetera. I'm, I'm just, Instagram is my big one uh, at Michael Jerome Plunkett. That's my full name. Um, that's, that's where I can be found. That's where I'm posting stuff. We just, we got our patrol based Bate stuff on there as well. And then there's the literature of war page. Uh, it's just on Instagram and uh that's where you can find me on one of those three pages. Dude, this was a pleasure. Long time coming. Long time planning, but definitely a <laughs> long time coming. And uh, dude, thanks for hanging out, man. This was a blast. Hey, Chris, I really appreciate the time and the, allowing me to talk about writing. Love to do it any other time. That was the savage wonder of Michael Jerome Plunkett. What a great conversation. Really enjoyed that. Um, it happened a while ago. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we had a really busy week, and uh, I'm glad I got that one in the can uh, when I did because I would not have time to get to it this week, this past week. Um, but, yeah, really love talking to him, and there will be more to come with Mike Plunkett in the future, I'm pretty sure. So on that note, things you should know uh, about VetRep. If you don't know much about VetRep, go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. Um, I think the biggest thing I'd like to ask for those of you that haven't done it already is subscribe to our literary blog. It is the best way to know all the different stuff we are doing and we are doing a lot all the time. Um, so it's the best way to find out about all the different lines of effort we have, see who's who and what is what and when things are happening in our sphere. Um, so when you go to vetrep.org, You'll see right there on the homepage, or if you go to the Now Playing tab, you'll see all the opportunities for you just to click a button and subscribe for free to our literary blog, which also doubles as our mailing list. And then you'll get a select piece of veteran writing every day, and then beneath it a bunch of shameless plugs of all the stuff we have going on. So we'd love to see you on there. Uh, we have stuff going on now. I mean, we just finished a whopper of a week. We had a Savage Wonderground down in D.C. We had... Edie Falco starring in Jason Pizzarello's play Brat, which we co-produced with Penguin Repertory Theater um, up here in New York. And that was phenomenal. Uh, I'm Literally, I just came from the final performance. It was a workshop reading. It was not a full-blown full blown performance, but uh, but really great time and so much fun uh, with Edie, with Bob Balaban, our director, with Joe Bricado, who's a veteran himself the artistic director of Penguin Theater, Penguin Rep Theater. And uh, yeah, just, and Jason Pizzarello, of course, who's been on the show and uh, his play Brat won our inaugural full-length playwriting competition. Uh, it's just, just a great group of people to uh, have fun with this week. Really, really, really a good time. Anyway, um, yeah, a lot of good stuff and uh, more to come on that. I, I feel relatively safe in saying in well, I don't know if it's the dangerously near future, but let's just say the future for right now, depending on schedules and a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay, that's all for me right now. I need to thank 
the producer of this episode, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Veterans Repertory Theater, we'll see you next time as we go further, deeper, explore more about the savage wonder of veterans in the arts.